That's a hard act to follow. Uh, we're going to dismiss our kids downstairs at this time. Molly's in the back. You find her back there. And just want to say happy Father's Day again, if, I, if you haven't heard it already. Um, it is such an honor to be a father. I, I uh, am so overwhelmed with the, uh, the blessing that it is uh, to be a dad, to be a father. And uh, I was thinking about our church and just the fact that we have so many um, really involved dads in this church. It, it's amazing to look around and you see um, we're not lopsided with um, the folks that come to this church. Our dads, our husbands, uh, they are here. They are involved. They are uh, authentic, godly men. And what a wonderful honor it is to, uh, to see the number of guys that are just following after the Lord. Amen? I don't think that we grasp just what a powerful thing that is. We know it, it's important, but um, I just want to encourage you. I think sometimes we beat our dads up. Um, you know, we take Father's Day and try to challenge our, our dads to get it together. <laughs> and uh, honestly, I mean... We can always do better, there's no doubt about that, but I mean, we have a lot of guys that are just really doing an awesome job, so uh, keep it up. Um, I want to I wanna admit something to you, if I can, which I always think about this, like, is this something you guys really need to know, or can I just play it off and not worry about it? But um, this morning, uh, I was going through the message and preparing, and uh, I'm just like, there is too much here. I'm just, I'm not going to get through it all in the time that, that I really have, and so um, I'm, I'm going to cut it down by about half, maybe even more than that, and not, did somebody just, <laughs> okay, you're welcome, um, but We'll get to the, the second half next week, um, but there's just so much here. I don't want to rush through some things, um, and so this morning as I was praying and I was working through it, I'm just like, I don't know. I mean, it's a weird thing for me um, because I have this message, and I've prepared it, and I have all these things that I, you know, I'm prepared to say and talk about, um, and then to like kind of have God kind of say, no, that's, that's not, a, that's too much. Um, then it puts me in a weird position because I'm. No, it's going to end probably awkwardly, more more so than usual. So, um, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the entire conversion of Saul, um, but uh, we're only going to deal with just a little bit of of what happened there. But I want you to understand something about this. Why this is so important. Saul's conversion is is really unique. It's probably the most uh, famous conversion of, of anyone in the scriptures, anyone in, in history, that you have this person who is persecuting the church, probably the most uh, actively uh, vicious, violent, uh, aggressive persecutor of the church in his time. Um, and then he turns around uh, by it, having a confrontation with Jesus. Jesus appears to him, and then he becomes the most 
active and zealous church planter that we've ever had in history. Okay, and so his conversion story is very unique. Nobody's story is like his. Now, here's the thing, is a couple things. One is your story is unique as well. Would you agree with that? Your story is absolutely 100% unique to you. Nobody else has your story. Nobody else has encountered Christ exactly the way that you have or come to believe in him the way that you have or seen the response that, that you have. Your story is your testimony. It's your witness of what God has done in your life and how you uh, refer to that, how you talk about that, how you um, share that with other people. I mean, that, that is something that, that is particular to how God made you, how he designed you, the experiences that you've had, and the people that you've come into contact with. And, and sometimes we look at Paul's story and we say, this is how, how everybody is supposed to get saved. You know, they're, they're supposed to encounter Jesus, and their life is just going to turn upside down in a moment, and then they're just going to run after Jesus for the rest of their life, and that's just how, how it works. And it's a particular moment in time that the, a day on the calendar that you could say, I encountered Jesus at this time, and this is what happened, and he said this to me, and then, boom, I was saved, and nothing has ever, you know, I've never gone back, and it's just been that going forward. And I, and I, I think that there's some truth to the reality that, that we do, you know, have this moment where we submit to the Lord, and we accept, you know, him as our Lord and Savior, um, but to paint everybody with the same brush and say that we're all going to have this exact same encounter is just, it's not true. But here's what we do see in Paul's conversion. Three main things happen. One is that God confronts him in his sin. He, he's confronted about where he's at with uh, what he's doing. Secondly, God saves him from his sin and rescues him. And thirdly, God calls him to serve him. Now, when you take a step back and you look at his story in that light, you say, well, that is everybody's conversion story to some degree. Everybody that knows Jesus as Lord and Savior should be able to say, I was lost and a sinner. Jesus rescued from my sin, rescued me from my sin, and I'm now called to serve him, right? That, that's what conversion is. How that works in everybody's life is a little bit different, um, but we're going to look at how it worked in Paul's life, and we're going to hopefully glean some, some really important truths out of that, okay? So let's stand as we read God's Word. This is Acts 9, and we're going to read uh, verses 1 through uh, 22. Don't get scared, but I want you to see the whole trajectory here uh, of Saul's conversion. Uh, Acts 9, 1 through 22 says, but Saul... We read this last week, still breathing murderous threats or threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. 
Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And as he has seen in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he is, and he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Now, I want to pause there for just a second. We're not going to get there today, but I believe there are a couple ways that you can understand this. One is that Ananias may be a little bit concerned for his own safety, um, but I, I'm, I lean towards this other understanding that Ananias, being human, um, is actually a little bit offended that this person who's been causing so much, he calls it havoc in the church, destroying Christians, destroying the church, killing people, that this person is going to get saved. That concerns him that God would have that much grace, but that is the kind of grace that God gives, amen? that he's willing not only to forgive somebody like Saul, he's willing to pull him in and recruit him as one of his ambassadors. And so, continues on, it says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus at the synagogues saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this... The, son of, or the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon his name. And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before their chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And Father, we thank you for your word today as we um, just begin to explore and understand uh, all the things that you are doing. In that day, Lord, we know that you have plans and, and purposes in our own day to see somebody that you would not just forgive for the uh, injustices and the wrongs that they had done to your people, but also to recruit them. Lord, that, that's a mystery beyond anything that we humanly can really comprehend. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have done that in our planning and our thinking we would be happy for a person like that to be removed. And God, in your, your world, <laughs> in your plan, in, in your way of doing things, uh, you wanted to go far, so far beyond just removing a threat. You wanted to turn an enemy into a friend. And Lord, we, uh, we're so glad that you did, not just for the sake of Paul's testimony and his ministry, but uh, because that gives us hope 
There's nobody, no one beyond saving. There's nobody who's, who's too far gone. There's nobody who's sinned too much that you wouldn't forgive them and not only forgive them, that you would recruit them uh, to be part of your kingdom, part of your plan, part of your church, uh, that you would call them to serve you, Lord. You, you would make them a friend. And Lord, we pray that we would be your friends today, Lord, that we would hear from you and respond to you and, and do uh, what is in your heart for us to do. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would make that clear to us for your glory, for our sake, for the sake of this world, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we talked about this last week, and, and I'll just give you a really brief uh, introduction to this, but Paul... Um, Saul, Paul, I'm going to be going back and forth between those two names. Uh, his name probably was Saulus Paulus, okay? And that's not a joke, that's real. Um, and in Hebrew culture, Jewish culture, he went by Saul. When he was in Greek and Roman culture, he would go by Paul. And so it's not, a, not just that God changed his name because God changed his heart, because his name doesn't really change until he starts going on mission trips, um, and it's probably because those were both his names. But Saul is uh, persecuting the church. He's trying to destroy the church. And the reason why uh, he was so adamant to try to destroy the church in that day is, is kind of not really mysterious to us. Uh, we understand, like, the Jewish people were really offended by the Christians and all that. But what was actually happening, most likely, was that in that day, the Jewish people, some of the Jewish people had this understanding that until the Jewish people were 100% faithful to God, the Messiah that they were expecting wouldn't come, okay? And so Paul was a Pharisee, and a Pharisee was this select group of believers who were seeking to be absolutely perfect in their obedience to the law. And part of the reason for that was not just so that they could be self-righteous and puffed up and you know, go to heaven. I mean, they, they wanted to usher in what they understood the Old Testament to be teaching, which is that when uh, the Jewish people as a whole were faithful and true to God and lived perfectly under the law, the, the way that God had planned and purposed in the Old Testament, then the Messiah would come. And, and when the Messiah came, then he would usher in a time when the Jewish people as a whole would rule the world. Right? And that was their understanding. That, And we know that that is actually true on one hand, that the Messiah will usher in a time of world domination of the Jewish people. Okay? But what we understand is that that is what we refer to as the millennial reign of Christ in Revelation. Okay? That will happen. The Jewish people believed that it was supposed to happen much sooner and that they would have a part in making that happen by being faithful and pure and righteous, and, and they could somehow make it happen in their day. Now, we have to be careful about that kind of thinking, because even though that sounds kind of preposterous to us, we, we, we in the church have a little bit of a, a similar way of thinking. Anybody ever heard the terminology of that we must, um, we must fulfill the Great Commission? You ever heard that before? Nobody's heard that before. Okay, well, never mind. But we, we talk about fulfilling the Great Commission. When we, when we have, as the church have fulfilled the Great Commission and, and made you know, all the disciples all over the world, then Jesus will return. And there's this issue, this problem that we think 
that we are going to have something that we're going to control God, that we're going to make God do things by the way that we do things. Do you see a problem with that? That, that we engage in the Great Commission, that we are involved in the Great Commission, but the timing is up to God, and he's going to do what he wants, he's going to do it when he wants and how he wants. Our job is to be faithful until then. But the thinking of Paul and many of the Jewish people in that day was, we're going to control what God does by what we do, and so we better get busy about making sure that we're faithful to the extent that they're going to persecute the church. Now, the reason why was because in the first century, the, in, especially in the early days here, and this is in the, the 30s, okay, 33 to 36 to 40, like in the, in the early 30s um, of the first century. So Paul says, we have to destroy the church. And what they did when they killed Stephen, and Paul is there giving his uh, approval of that, what they did was they had kind of, uh, squashed, in a sense, the church in Jerusalem. And the church in Jerusalem was almost all Jewish people. This is why this was such a big deal to them. The church at that time was almost exclusively Jewish, and the only Gentile people were Gentiles who'd become Jews who then became Christians. And so what happened when they persecuted Stephen was that the church scattered all over the world. So now that we've kind of put out the main fire in Jerusalem, we need to go out and put out the little fires that are still existing in different parts of the world, thinking, you know, that they could somehow, you know, destroy the church because they didn't understand that this was God's plan and God's church. And so Paul goes on this mission trip to go to Damascus because I don't know if you ever think about why would Paul go to this extent that he's going to go travel to other places all over the world to try to to arrest and kill Christians. Does that ever boggle your mind? Like, why, why is he so angry at these people? And it's not just that he's angry, although he is a little bit angry. It's that he is afraid that they're going to miss God's blessing if they don't destroy uh, these people. And so he goes on this mission. And then here's the main thing, is that when he goes to Damascus, he gets just outside the city, and he is confronted by Jesus himself. And Jesus says, as Paul falls to the ground with his light and he's blinded, and he says, um, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And right here, we have something that's, to me, extremely interesting in what Jesus is saying about the connection between himself and his church. Because he could have said, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting my, my children? Why are you persecuting my church, my, my bride? Why, uh, but he doesn't say that. He says specifically, why are you persecuting me? And here's what I believe, okay, and what I think about you and I as, as a whole. If you are in a church for very long, and, and I know there are some people that are brand new, or maybe this is your first time, and maybe you haven't really heard this before. But if you're in a church very long, you're going to understand pretty quickly that we teach, we believe that, that the Bible says that you are positionally, and I, I hate to use like theological language, but it's almost hard not to. When God sees you, he sees his son. When God 
looks at you, he sees Jesus. If you're, if you're a Christian, if you're saved, if you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says that you have the Holy Spirit in you, that you're a new creature in Christ, that you are redeemed, that you are a son, a daughter in Christ, your brothers and sisters with Christ, that in John it says that God gave you the power to become children of God, okay? All these things, 2 Corinthians says that he who knew no sin became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. This imputed righteousness, and imputed just means like this transfer. On the cross, Jesus took the sin of the world on, on himself. He became sin on the cross. He paid for sin on the cross. His blood poured out, causing there to be uh, an ability for an atonement, which means that if you trust him, what happens is that mysteriously, cosmically, your sin is transferred to Jesus on the cross. And not just that, you're not just forgiven, but his perfect life is then transferred to you. Okay? This is what the Bible teaches about what it means to be a Christian. You're not just somebody who's forgiven. You're somebody who is transformed into the very image of Jesus. Christian means little Christ. That's what the word literally means. You are a little Christ. And theologically speaking, okay, biblically speaking, you are not just a representative of Christ in the world, you are the body physically of Christ in this world. Okay, that, that's, and, and what I think, what I hope is that most people who are Christians, even if you're not a Christian, you kind of understand what's going on there. Like that's, that's the truth of what it means to be a believer. Now, even though that is something that we can agree, I hope that we all understand and believe, how many people feel like that? And my guess is that even though most people understand it, and most people would even say they believe it, a much fewer number really feel it. Like, yeah, I'm, I am like a walking Christ around the, the school or my workplace or my home. Anybody feel like you're just a little Christ walking around? Just call me Jesus. I mean, it almost sounds blasphemous, but the reality is that that's how God sees you. Now, here's what I, I think is happening for most people, saved people, believers, Christian people, is that even though you believe that, even though you're, you're holding on to that trust and that sense that, yes, this is the truth, and I've accepted that truth, and I'm, I've put my faith in Jesus Christ, it's likely that the distance between what you know is true and how you feel on a day-to-day -day basis, that gap is because of the lack of time that you're spending with the Lord. And I'm not trying to beat anybody up. I'm just, I'm concerned that so many Christians feel so distant from God when the reality of the Christian faith is it was never intended to be a religion. It was always intended to be a relationship. And 
as much as I hope that you and I love what we do here on a Sunday morning. And I, I mean, I pray that it is your favorite time of the week. Like if you had one hour of the week that you're like, what's your favorite hour of the week? It would be Sunday morning when I'm in church with my people, worshiping my God. I feel the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Josh belts out this song and I just, you know, I get chills and I just love that, you know. I mean, I hope that that's true, but here's the, the thing that I'm concerned with is that for some people, this moment is the only spiritual thing that you're doing any given week. And you go from one Sunday to the next without a personal connection with the Lord. And I'm not saying that you're not saved, but I'm saying that you probably don't feel saved because you don't feel close to God because you're waiting for that next Sunday to come around to kind of rejuvenate that faith that, that's kind of, maybe it's the mustard seed, maybe it's there, but it's, it's just not filling your day in your mind and your life and your heart and, and that sense of joy and peace that you can have is kind of lost in the daily shuffle of busyness and problems and work and finances and confusion and whatever you're, you know, you're binge watching on Netflix and kids you know, and all the rest of it. And before you know it, another week has gone by and this book has not been opened and you haven't spent 10 minutes talking to your father who loves you. And all I can say is that I'm <laughs> am I getting too preacherly? I'm just saying that maybe I'm completely wrong, and I hope that I'm completely wrong. Um, but I'm concerned that maybe I'm not wrong, that a lot of people are not engaged in a relationship with God. And that is why Jesus died for you. He did not die for you to have a religion. He died in order for you and I to know him personally, spend time with him daily. And prayer gets to be this, this big like thing that we think has to be very structured or a list of things that we're asking for or people that we're praying for. And that's fine. Pray for those people and pray for those things. But I'm telling you, my prayer life is I'm having a conversation with God. And I'm just trying to talk to him about things going on in my life and my mind and my heart and my church and just I'm spilling things out and I'm asking questions and I'm trying to hear his voice and I'm just spending time with him. And when I get to, oh, and here are some things that, God, would you please do this? Would you please be with this person? That's great. I do do that. But that's not the bulk of my prayer. I'm just trying to get quiet, trying to get alone and just be with the Lord and I don't know. I, and I tell you, I'm reading Scripture every single day, not because I have to study it. I do that too. But just because I want to hear his voice. This is God speaking to you. I, I start with reading the Scripture. That's what I do. And that's not how everybody does it. I start with reading the Scripture because I, I think that it kind of resets my mind and my heart to to just get into this word and let it kind of do its work of hearing from the Lord and what is he saying and 
And then I can kind of pray and think about the things that I've read. And you might not know where to start, and that's okay. Most people don't know where to start. Start anywhere, okay? I don't know that it really matters that much. If you want to start in Genesis, start in Genesis. If you want to start in Gospels, you know, start reading Matthew. Pick it up anywhere. Just start reading and let the Lord work on you. But this is his voice to your heart in your relationship with him in prayer. and Devotions, quiet time, whatever you want to call that, I, I mean, it doesn't matter what you call them. There are a lot of good things. I'm reading a lot of other things besides the Bible, but I never replace the Bible with somebody else's thoughts about the Bible. I don't need regurgitated Bible. I need the Bible. I need God's word to me. And what other people think about it is fine, and sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes I need to have my own thoughts about what God's saying to me. Amen? Spending that time, here's what's going to happen, I believe, okay? Those who are saved are going to not only know it biblically, theologically, but they're going to start to feel it. And if you feel questioning, lost, distant, guilty, I'm telling you there's really no other solution than just to spend time with God. Nothing can replace that. So he says, why are you persecuting me? And the first thing that I understand about that is that we are the body of Christ. Now, the second thing about that is when Paul was persecuting the church, um, <laughs> there were a lot of things going on. The, uh, <clears throat> I don't know how far to go with this. Um, the world that we're in right now has in my opinion, dramatically shifted in the last 10 years, maybe, maybe 20 years, but really, really dramatically, dramatically in the last 10 years. Um, I was just thinking about this, you know, how um, I don't feel like I've really changed that much. You know, I mean, I hope that I've grown and I hope that I've learned some things, but I don't feel like I've really changed but the world around me has really changed. And I don't know, is that something that, because I'm getting old, like I'm just feeling that more? I mean, Troy's only 28, but... Oh, 29. Sorry, he had a birthday. Um, I get concerned about the... Uh, I get concerned about persecution. I get concerned about the nature of what's going to happen in the next 10 years, the next 20 years if things continue on the, the trajectory that they're on, um, that the church is, is in, in a place of being really um, in a, embattled in our culture. That we're starting to see, and, and I'm not trying to be a fear monger or an alarmist, okay? I'm, I, I see that the church has a really pivotal role and has always had a very pivotal role in being the conscience of the nation. 
Like that was what we were designed to be in, in, in terms of this country, that the church was supposed to uh, alarm the government and the populace of what moral right and moral wrong was so that we had a sense of what was truth and what was not truth and, and how to proceed forward. And, and what we have now is this sense that um, the, the world has been encroaching on the church and there's a lot going on in these days. One thing is that the church wants to be popular. And I get wanting to be popular. I get the idea that we want to be relevant to our community. Absolutely, we want to be relevant. But we begin to water down hard teaching uh, to the extent that it's very palatable and agreeable to everyone. We don't want anybody to, to not come to church because what we're saying might offend anybody. And so what we do is, is we water down the gospel. We water down the things of, of morality, the things that God has said about who he is and who we are and how we're supposed to relate to him. We don't want to really offend anyone. That's one side of things, but how it leads the church down this really dangerous path is that we begin to lose our ability to actually speak to the problems of our culture today because we've backed off so far from the things that are actually really relevant. And that enables the enemy to really harm and persecute the church. I get concerned about that because I, I wonder what the future of the church is, and I wonder what the future of the next generation is. Because we have young people who are growing up in a culture that are being told, like, I mean, in the last three or four years, June has been very miserable. I mean, the, the, the Pride Month, and it's just everywhere, and it's on everything, and everybody's logo's turning rainbow, and, every, and everywhere you go, it's just this widely accepted and shoved down your throat thing that you, you need to agree with LGBTQ everything. And our, our young people are hearing that and, and being, I'm going to say brainwashed, into this concept that, that there is really no right or wrong in this area. And what's going on in the church is that we're afraid to say anything because people are going to be offended by that, and therefore we don't say anything, hoping to just kind of get along with everybody. And meanwhile, we have a whole young culture who have totally bought and drank the, the Kool-Aid. To the extent, and this is just, I'm going to say it's insanity, and I know that's offensive, and I, I, but it's true, that in Norway right now, there's a lawsuit going on because a man said that a man cannot be a mother. He's being sued, and he, I think he's in danger of going to jail because he dared to say that a man cannot be a mother, biologically speaking. And he may end up going to prison. And you know, that's like, well, that's in Norway. It's, 
But I'm telling you that we're moving into this, this realm, this direction, where we, who have the truth of God's word, are being silenced from saying anything about these things because it, it's going to hurt somebody's feelings and we're going to be hated for that. But the reality is that truth should always be spoken from the pulpit and, and by Christian people. And as much as it breaks my heart that somebody would be confused about their, their gender, I mean, I, I, that's, that's difficult. I, I get that's hard, and, I, and there are people that are suffering with, with issues regarding that, and I'm not making light of it whatsoever. But our culture is saying that if you don't agree with this person and their desire to be called something different than what they actually are, then that's hate language and that's intolerant and that's wrong. And, and listen, I'm, I'm a white 45-year-old male. If I were dead tomorrow and laying on a, on a table and they were going to do an autopsy, that's what they would say. That's an objective fact. It doesn't matter how I feel about it. But if I force you to agree with me that I'm something different than what my reality actually, actually is, then you're agreeing with my insanity. That's what it is. To say that something is not the reality and then to agree that we're all going to believe in a false reality and call, call something not what it is or call something is that it's not. You see the, the problem that we're facing? And here's why it's such an issue with the, the church is because God designed us according to his good plan. He made us in his image. He wants to redeem us. If we don't understand that we're fallen creatures who fail and we struggle, and I mean, who does not have some uh, you know, insecurity? Does anybody not have some insecurity? Anybody feel a little bit of out of place in their skin? But I am who God says I am, and I am who I truly am because it's an objective fact. And here's what it kind of leads me to, and he says, when Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, I can take a, a little bit of a breath here because what I realize is that Jesus is still in charge of his church. And, and it's not about me, and it's not about the next generation, it's not about you know the, the culture that is shifting so hard, and, and the church is, is left holding you know, the, the truth of God's word to a, a, a population that may not be very agreeable to it. I mean, you, it used to be pretty easy to get people to come to church because we kind of all agreed, like, this is good stuff. We're heading into a, a time when that agreement's maybe not there so much. When people say, it's actually bad for you to be in church. I mean, I've, I've started to hear that already. It's, it's bad to be a Christian. It's bad to go to church. It's bad to read your Bible. It's bad to believe in God because those things are destructive. And what we need is to be whatever we want to be. 
but Jesus is in charge of his church. He is going to get the last word <laughs> as far as that goes. But what he wants, and hear my heart on this, what he wants is not to argue about these issues or to, to make people feel bad. What he wants is to redeem people and save people and give them life and give them hope and give them confidence in, in who they are and his love for them and their design and what his future for them is and can be. Amen? But if we don't speak the truth, then what's going to happen is that we'll never have the ability to share the gospel with people. Because we've lost it. We've lost our, our standing. People will not respect the church when we waffle on things that are so fundamental to who God is and who we are. So Paul's persecuting the church, but it, here's the ultimate issue, is that it wasn't Paul and it wasn't the church, it was Satan's scheme against Christ. So what he says is when he says, you're persecuting me, he's saying this is a cosmic thing. This is an age-old battle of, of Satan's plan, his scheme, to undermine the truth of God's word and to destroy people in the process. And the church's job, your job, okay, my job, but your job is to lovingly, graciously, mercifully, faithfully share Christ with people around you. We have to do that. We have to be willing to face the, the fact that people aren't going to love what we have to say. We have to be willing to face the fact that some people are going to be really offended. I mean, after saying what I've just said this morning, I mean, I just imagine that this sermon online could be used against me down the road. Would you agree that that's possible? And what I love, though, is that we have a church body that will demand that we talk about these things. That won't let it skate by. But we'll also, on the same hand, make sure that we're telling people where the hope is. The hope is in Christ. And, and the truth held out, sometimes that truth is hard, but that truth held out is the only hope that this world has to escape the scheme of the enemy that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's robbing people of, of their identity in Christ, robbing people of their identity as a human being. We have kids right now who are trying to be, pretend to be animals. And we're putting litter boxes in our schools. This is literally happening right now. And we're trying to be politically correct about this. And this is how far it goes, guys. I mean, it, 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 we haven't seen anything yet to the extent that it could go. So we have to continue to understand 
that Jesus is the only hope that we have. He's my hope. He's your hope. And we've got to pray, proclaim and preach and teach and project and, and give people the testimony of Jesus. And he'll do what only he can do. I'm so thankful that Paul was arrested by Jesus. Just stopped in his tracks when he came into contact with him. And this is our prayer. And as much as I tried to cut, you know, the sermon down, my prayer is that people would come into contact with Jesus. And that you and I would intentionally, knowingly introduce people to, to him. That's it. That's all that it is, all the time, that we intentionally introduce people to Jesus Christ, their only hope. Amen? Father, we thank you that you can take somebody like Paul and you can bring him full circle. The greatest enemy can become the greatest friend, the, uh, the one who is spewing hate and intolerance and uh, violence. Wrote uh, 1 Corinthians 13. By the inspiration of your spirit, understood what love was, finally. And Lord, we uh, pray for your Holy Spirit to do the same in us, Lord, that we were running away from you. Lord, we pray that you would draw us back. I, I, I'm convicted right now. I did not say things very well. I, uh, I pray that your heart, your truth, the, the power of your spirit to save, the, the joy of knowing you, Lord, would be understood today. That we would come to a place where we, we, we get it. We get you. We need you. You're our only hope and our only desire, Father, and I pray that today would be a day when that would truly be understood. We thank you for all that you are and all that you do. God, I, I don't know what you're going to do, Lord, with each of our lives, but I know that you've called each and every one of us. You designed each and every one of us. You desire each and every one of us to know you. You call each and every one of us to serve you. And I pray that we would cling to that, to own it, to rejoice in it, and to praise you for it, Father. I thank you that you can do all these things in us, through us, somehow, mysteriously. Lord, I pray that you would in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you this morning, and I, I know I'm a broken record, but if you have come into contact with Jesus this morning, for the first time, you want to lay your life down and let him take ownership of it, would you come to the altar and just lay your life down? Physically, you're saying, my life is yours to do with what you want. Um, if there is anything in your heart that is broken and needing repairing, I I'm, I'm just going to ask you, um, just lay it down. Just come and say, God, I, I can't fix what's wrong in me, but you can. And I pray that you would. Amen? Let's stand and sing.